0: May only truth be spoken, and only truth received. Amen. The new year has begun, which for some of us may be accompanied by brave resolutions to change some personal practice or to add some new discipline. Just how many gym memberships have been contemplated over these days. Perhaps there's been a bit of agonizing over the shape of the credit card bill, and an accompanying commitment to be just a bit more careful next year. Soon enough, all of the wreaths and the garlands in the church will be carefully packed away till next year. But before we move into the depths of a winter that has plenty of snow and a deep cold, but none of the colored lights or decorated trees to distract us, one last story for the season. Tonight we mark the Feast of the Epiphany and tell that story of the journey of the Magi to Bethlehem to see the child. Now why is it that this piece of this story lags a full 12 days behind the portion told in the Gospel according to Luke? Well, in part, it's to acknowledge that Matthew is telling a story different from Luke's. Here, the travelers from the east do not visit a stable with a newborn baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, but rather they enter a house where they see the child with his mother Mary. Which suggests that Matthew has in mind a slightly later arrival. And in terms of the theological significance, Matthew is making a different point here than the one made by Luke. Luke is so delighted to tell his readers that it is shepherds of all people who receive an angelic message about the arrival of this baby. Matthew is equally delighted to tell his readers about the arrival of Gentile visitors. Not just any Gentiles either, but Magi from a distant land, foreigners whose own particular way of learning has led them to Bethlehem. This epiphany or showing forth, manifestation, to the Magi would have been a bit of a shock to Matthew's largely Jewish Christian audience. Scholar of religion Karl Kuhn, It suggested that while in their own social and religious context, these magi, astrologers, and dream interpreters would have been regarded as wise, in a Jewish context, they might have been regarded as misguided, wrong-headed, Kuhn notes that in nearly every reference to them in surviving Israelite texts of the time, so other Jewish writings, such astrologers were seen as being foolish for following astrological systems. The stars tell us nothing of the earth, Judaism would say. And so it's very likely that most recipients of Matthew's gospel would not have held the Magi in particularly high regard. What was God up to? Many of those original recipients of Matthew's gospel would have asked. Why them? It's a fair question. These Magi are hardly likely candidates for, a, for an epiphany experience. Their system of learning was indeed sophisticated, but utterly outside of Judaism's accepted way of knowledge. They're not covenant people. They're not children of Abraham and Sarah, and they do not recognize the one God. Their attempts at finding truth and meaning in the movement of stars and planets was at best dismissed as folly by the Jews, At worst, it was akin to magic, magi, magic. Why then? Yet Matthew's unrelenting in his willingness to tell his story and to proclaim to his readers that this child's birth has a meaning well beyond the boundaries of Israel. It is a story for the world. There is in the concept of an epiphany, a sense that it's all somewhat unexpected and a gift. Yes, the Magi journey long and far, they do their work, yet when they arrive they are given something they would not even begun to expect. So let me tell you another epiphany story, one considerably closer to our own time and context. It's hard to think of a Christian thinker of the past hundred years, whose influence has been greater than that of C.S. Lewis. Though some in the theological fraternity have dismissed him as being a popularizer, a writer for a general audience, not a serious theologian, in recent decades there's been a reconsideration of his intellectual importance. In the past year, the theologian Alistair McGrath has published two major studies on Lewis's life and work. Rowan Williams, the first thing he published after leaving his seat as Archbishop of Canterbury, was a study of Narnia. And recently, Lewis was added to Westminster Abbey's Poet's Corner, confirming his significance as an English literary figure. Yet as a young scholar, Lewis was as distant from the world of faith and theology as were those magi from Bethlehem. Coming through a tough childhood in which his mother died when he was still quite young and surviving the trenches of the First World War, when Lewis was first appointed as a fellow of Magdalen College in Oxford in 1925 he was an avowed atheist many people don't realize that yet as he wrote in his autobiography surprised by joy quote all the books were beginning to turn against me he loved the work of george MacDonald, of whom he commented that it was quote a pity that he had a bee in his bonnet about christianity In other words, Macdonald would be so much better if he wasn't a Christian. He also wrote that Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, had more sense than all the moderns put together, dating, of course, his Christianity. Yet all the thinkers who spoke to Lewis believed in God. And those who didn't believe in God, Lewis found increasingly thin. All the books were beginning to turn against me. But it wasn't just the books that were turning against him. For increasingly, increasingly, Lewis's most substantial friendships were with people who believed in God, Hugo Dyson, Owen Barfield, and very particularly, J.R.R. Tolkien. And soon the atheist found his atheism crumbling. He couldn't maintain it anymore, in fact. And so he writes in, surprised by joy, people who are naturally religious find difficulty in understanding the horror of such a revelation. Amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. To me, as I was then, they might well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. It was, in short, a devastating intellectual move for him to begin to acknowledge that God might exist. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected, and reluctant convert in all England. Now, at this point, when Lewis kneels and prays and acknowledges that he does, in fact, believe in God, he was still not able to embrace Christianity. He saw it laden with too much myth. He was simply affirming a theistic belief in God, God as a creator. God as something of the grand clockmaker who builds creation, sets it in motion and releases it. It wouldn't be for a couple years, 1931, that he was able to actually move into the Christian faith. And again, it was friendship with the likes of Tolkien and Dyson that were key. It was late, late one night, 3 a.m. in fact, that Lewis found himself strolling with these two friends on a place called Addison's Walk in Oxford, deep in conversation about matters of belief. It was Tolkien's embrace of the power of myth that particularly undid Lewis, a view that he would later himself advocate in a famous essay called Myth Became Fact. A day or two later, after that late night walk and talk with these two great friends, he and his brother Warney set out on a day trip to the zoo. Warney driving the motorcycle and Lewis riding in the sidecar. And of that trip to the zoo, he wrote, I was driven to Whipsnade one sunny morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. (laughs) There's absolutely no mystical experience in it. There's no supernatural revelation, no sign of a teary-eyed altar call, much less of a star shining in Bethlehem. Yet for Lewis, this two-stage movement, from atheism to theism, and then from theism to Christianity, was no less an epiphany than was the experience of the Magi told by Matthew in his gospel. Like the Magi, Lewis thought his scholarship would lead him to an expected and reasonable destination, and like them, he found himself surprisingly off course. Matthew gives us no clue as to what the Magi might ultimately have done with their experience of seeing this child in Bethlehem, how it might have changed them or reformed them in their beliefs and commitments, only that they went back home by another road. But it's quite fair to imagine it quite utterly disoriented them, at least for a time. Everything would have to be renegotiated and navigated afresh. Like Lewis in his discovery that man's search for God was about as safe as the mouse's search for the cat, their conversion was, in its own way, a painful, difficult, and overwhelming thing. The world, truth, and God are viewed in a way that can only lead to struggle, pain even. I suspect those magi had some hard work to do letting go of the old and moving into the new, as did Lewis. And much as some some of us might long for a clear star of Bethlehem, give me a star in the sky that can just show me the way, clearly the truth, give me that vibrant supernatural revelation, I find Lewis's account at least, as powerful as that of the Magi, particularly when he points to the role of those deep friendships in drawing him closer to light and to faith. It is the same today. Occasionally, somebody does see a star of Bethlehem or its equivalent. Somebody does have one of those immediate indisputable experiences of the Holy right there in their face, but so often it's a late night walk in the company of friends, or maybe over a pint shared in a pub, in a searching conversation over coffee or a meal, maybe even in something so routine as the exchange of emails in conversation insofar as we are prepared to struggle together, and the together piece is so critical, right, for Lewis in those friendships and for us in our own various walk, So, insofar as we are prepared to struggle together in our search for the truth that is Christ, the star of Bethlehem still shines. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.